Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Okay, Kev, what do we got for a replay today? I tell you, Ron, we got we got a, a great show, first of all. Yep. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting Super to the show. horror story we have. Uh, now, Jed was going to come on the air. That was last week's Brian's brother. Uh, and Ryan had stepped in, told a great story. Jed uh, just happened to leave. So we, I'm going to do the story for him because it was some great points that our listeners need to know about window installation. His brother, Ryan, had vinyl windows. And we're replacing it within vinyl siding, so right. it's a little bit easier. This is a stucco application of redoing the stucco. That's always sticky, right? It is sticky. Yeah. The horror story, we're going to have a great horror story again. It's the job I'm on. Mark was on a few weeks ago, and we, we ran into a massive amount of problems. But I, I tell him it's nothing new. But the problem is, I talk about the horror story. It, it's going to be very suspenseful when you hear exactly what I have to say and who's the one doing the job. But let's jump into the replay. And what we were, were talking about is how they met the Strong Brothers. Great guys. Very well educated themselves on how... Uh, the process had to be done of, of finding the right contractor. Mm-hmm. So when I met Jed, it was a referral for one of his neighbors, Gannon, Pat Gannon, who does all of our, our chimney work. And he said, listen, can you contact him? He's, mm-hmm. he's got a little dilemma. He's talking about stucco. Uh, people are asking him $100,000 to tell him to redo the stucco. And I said, well, let me go over there. And l- before I even say anything, let me just talk to him, see what some of the issues are. As I met him, I, I went inside, and we were just chatting for a little bit. And I said, well, listen, I've done a bunch of homes in the area. Why, why do you think you have a major stucco problem? Because everybody's about stucco removing it. Well, that's what people are telling me. I said, well, uh, I'm going to Get a window you. problem instead, right? No, no, the windows no? are fine. Because it, when you have old, older, better-style windows, the difference is those older-style windows have a complete sill at the bottom where it's the, the length of them. Uh, Anderson's another very good window. I and mean, people think because it's probably the most popular in the nation. Uh, his front windows, when I saw, they were Anderson windows. And I said, well, the Anderson window, it, it, it runs all the way across the sill. And then the jams sit on top. Where a vinyl window, you have the welds, and those welds break, and that's where the stucco problems are usually mm-hmm. caused. And again, not, it's not that vinyl's a bad window. It's just because that's the nature of the beast. And when those welds break, is that when it gets like a smoky or uh, it look, the, the window looks smoky? No, that's when the seal failure happens when between the seal the two okay. panes of glass. They okay. call that seal failure. And what that does is the vinyl's moving so much. Well, the, the technology, the warm-edge technology, which is usually aluminum, they hold these two pieces of glass together. And mm-hmm. when that's pulling on it, it breaks the seal. Moisture uh-huh. gets in, and that's what you're seeing. Yep. With the weld I'm talking about, it's the frame of the weld. So the welds that match all four corners around the frame, uh, the ones at the bottom are the ones that uh, pop, we call them. And when that pops, where you have uh, with a vinyl window, you'll see two holes at the bottom of the window. Well, that's a chamber on, inside there. And then that when that water or hard-driving rain gets inside that chamber, which is usually that, around the, uh, the, the, set, the sash balusters, uh, once that gets in there, that water drains and drains properly. That's why they say never close up the, the, the drip holes. But if you don't have that f- flash properly, the problems that people are having with stucco, this is what the happens. Problem. It leaks in yeah. behind there. Well, I knew he didn't have the problem. Second of all, I did a bunch of homes in the neighborhood. And believe it or not, back in the, the 80s and 90s, there are some builders that actually put a heavy piece of plastic down. It was like a heavy, uh, hefty bag that they put down there. And that will absorb the water and drain. And that was like a first generation of sill painting that people put down. And I said, well, I think what's happening here. So it was just improvised or did they sell it that way? Uh, you know what? I don't know. I, I yeah. It's something, I mean, I started in 1989, and I've seen a couple of them through uh, the job that I've done, but there's certain developments that do have it. My One of our places where I have the condo, they have them in there, and that, that helps a lot because some of the windows that we did, there was so much moisture from around the wood window, the mm-hmm. wood windows rotted to nothing. And as we took it out, that plastic underneath there really saved them a lot of damage. So it really uh, gave a lot of people a, a sense of peace of mind that, that they had a decent product underneath, and they could wait longer because they have that in place. But a lot of these newer developments that were put back in in the 80s, 90s, they never did that. 
And with that happening, these are the problems that are arising with the stucco situation, uh, people that are having rot because it was never properly perfected, the, the, the rubber that was put down. But I knew he had some type of protection down there. And I said, well, why would somebody be trying to tell you that? They said, well, there's, there's no way. It's got to get ripped down. And I said, well, listen, uh, why, don't, why don't we do this? Uh, do you have a spot where we can take down maybe some drywall where you feel that a window has been heavily compromised? He said, yeah, I do. It's up in my upstairs room. He had the drywall down already. And I, as I pulled that back and I pulled the insulation back, everything was perfect underneath. And he said, how's this happening? I said, well, it's because the windows are, uh, they're a better window. You're going to have a less percentage of a chance. But let alone on top of that, you have rubber. It's a plastic that's under there. Like it's a six mil polyethylene that's put under there. So you've got double protection from back then. So you don't need stucco. And we started prodding some more areas and there was no damage underneath there. I said, look, I'd love to sell you $100,000 worth of stucco remediation, but you don't need it. And if you don't need it, why spend the money? I don't mind spending your money. I just told him I didn't want to waste it. I tell you, it was a sign of relief from him that he didn't have to put $100,000 out to redo this, but he still wanted to do the So what, if the problem were there, would he have to do all the stucco over? Yes, he would. Because it's, I mean, once you start patching it, it looks patched, doesn't it? It, do, it does. Don't get me wrong, it does. And there are ways that we can minimize that by painting, uh, if you get the exterior Yeah, but done. just the motion of the hand with stucco is a big deal, isn't it? Correct. It's why is my signature different than yours? Exactly. So you are yeah. going to notice it. And there yeah. was an addition put on the house, but I was all worried about the dollars. I don't mind spending his money, but I just felt he didn't need it. And there were areas that he looked into and he had the drywall down to the bedroom. There was no damage. And that's the side where the rain gets and you can see all the mold on the, the house, which he's going to get cleaned and painted. But I say, listen, when you do paint stucco, there's no way to just reapply new stucco over top of it. You need to wire lath it and go the whole nine yards with a brown coat and a, the stipple coat. But you don't need to spend the money. You really want to do the windows? Then just do the windows. You don't need to spend all this extra money. That sign of relief, that's probably what got me the job because I was honest with him. I'm not here to sell him. I want to educate him. And I said that right from the beginning. If you get a great education, you can make the decision yourself. Do you need to replace it? Right. So, and I said, here's another thing. And I've done a lot of these windows where people have stucco. I felt there was no problems. We took some drywall down underneath the windows. There was no damage whatsoever. So I said, well, we can do this. We can take the, the existing window out, cut around the window. Because I said, I need to expose the nailing flange. I'm going to be able to rubber that. I'm going to be able to seal that. And I'm going to be contained inside that unit. And I'm going to get it sealed. But... I'm going to be upfront and honest with you. When I cut that stucco, I'm going to use a grinder. That placement from where the rubber is to where the existing stucco is, I'm going to be able to, I'm compromising that area. So what I'm going to be able to do is I'm going to actually do a pre-silicone on that. And by doing that, I'm just trying to ensure that I can give you the best job possible. Because once you address that area, once I cut that, I compromise the underlayment. What do you mean by a pre-silicone? What did you put, what did you do? So once I put the, the rubber up, I use the Tyvek Flex at the bottom, and mm -hmm. I use the Tyvek Straight, and I fill that gap in, and it's about two and a half inches that we apply. But from mm -hmm. where that rubber ends to the existing stucco, I put some silicone into it before I put my polymer boards down. And then I wrap the polymer boards and drip cap that and, and build out from there. So once the polymer boards are on, I'm gonna have a drip cap, rubber tape, nailing flange, spray foam insulation that's airtight and watertight before it gets in. So no air or water is getting in. In that area, yes. Right. But I want to be able to ensure that where I compromise the stucco, that he's not going to have a problem for years to come. And that's the one thing I told him. I said, look, I want to be upfront and honest with you. Nobody's ever told him that. Nobody ever really tells anybody that. But we need to address the nailing flange. And to do that, we're going to compromise the, the stucco, the existing stucco underlayment. And once that's done... It could be a problem, but I haven't had problems in 15 years doing it this way. No callbacks, no damage, no whatsoever. But I want you to be aware of this. And by doing it this way, these are the extra steps that I'm going to do to ensure that your job's going to be done and done right. But I want you knowing exactly what we do. There's no hidden strings, no anything that we're doing. I want you knowing. I felt confident enough that I said, when we do your job, we're not going to have a problem. But it was that $100,000 of savings of stucco remediation that he's not going to have to put out. That's, that's what he was really concerned with. Because I said, your stucco's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Those areas that we've uh, seen on the backside, they are fine. It's like some of the situations I, you know, we talked about where uh, stucco guys come out and they want to test and they want to pry and they want to drill holes in your stucco. You mean if, if you're selling your house and you've, mm -hmm. it's a stucco house, people want to drill into you, bore into you? Right. So you're, yeah. you're still compromising the underlayment of that. Now they fill it in with silicone, but it's still compromised. And it's kind of the same concept. But it's that spending of money. A lot of people don't have this extra $100,000 lying around to just throw it stucco that it's not a problem. 
And you and I talked about it, which we'll get later uh, as the year goes on. We're going to definitely talk about ways to get around this that are going to be a lot less costly. And homeowners are going to understand it's going to be a lot cheaper to do it this way. And they're going to feel good about it that they, if they have a stucco house, it's not going to be a problem. But this is a, a sure sign way that we can easily find out if we do have a problem. But by doing this, and we're set up for the future. Now, what I said to, to Jed is that the rubber that I do put down, if you do want to get stucco repaired or pulled off and then go with siding the rubber that i'm going to place around there we can slide that uh, tyvek the underlayment underneath the existing product that i put on the tyvek flux because of the the tape the way it's set right it, it, we can work this together so i'm i'm not saying hey you have to do it this way i'm giving you a future if you do want to do it also that's one of the nicer points with me doing the work is that i have that availability i know it's going to be done that way because i'm the one physically going to be doing it david i at least and by doing it this way i'm setting people up for the future and once I gave him that education, that's why he's using us because I was upfront and honest with him. But again, it's like Ryan said, it's all about the application of the window. And by doing it this way, you're going to be done. He's done forever. This is so it. anybody's got a stucco house and old windows that have to be replaced or you know broken windows that have to be replaced. You have to be cognizant of this kind of thing. Absolutely. Right? Because somebody could try to sell you a bill of goods and your whole house has to be done with, over with stucco, correct? Pretty much, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah, because it's going to get worse. And I tell people, listen, if you want to do a replacement window, the first thing you need to check is to make sure that existing window that's inside that stucco is not leaking. Because if it's leaking, it's not stopping with what a new replacement window is going to offer. The frame still needs to be addressed. And if you don't address the frame, what's the sense of doing those windows? And that's that honesty that I gave Jed that information. Once he got that information, he could understand that it's going to be a lot easier for him to make that decision to, to get the windows because I'm setting them up for the future. But I just didn't want to sell them, and that's what I'm finding more today. And we're going to have a lot of harvesters. I'm working on one right now. Uh, it's local, too. The guy found us, and he knew I was local because I mentioned uh, in one of the shows I was I was local. He contacted the show, and he had the same situation. It was a, a window, and I'll just say there was a warranty issue. They sent another contractor out to do it. And boys, he's having some massive leaks. And I started asking a couple questions. Did they address the area where these pro problems are having, the prone areas with the drip cap, the nailing point? He's like, no, they just took a sawzall and cut around and put that window in. I said, well, they never addressed the problem from the beginning. So no matter how many times you do that with a new window, it's leaking around the existing frame. Right. And if you don't address that, a brand new window that he just put in is going to keep leaking. Same thing. Absolutely. Right. How do you stop that? Do the job right the first time. Usually I, I, I try to give the best advice. And by giving the best advice, it is going to cost some more money. And by doing that, you're done right. And you're done forever. That's the nice part. Well, at least in my lifetime, because uh, I'm not going to be around in 50 years to, to put your new windows in. Or if you do have a problem in 45 years, you're going to be calling me when I'm 95. You have to have a good seance to get me to do that. But that's why I do what I do is because I don't want callbacks. I want to be able to educate to give that right decision the first time. And if you do get that right decision, you make that leap of faith, trusting me on it, then you're never going to have a problem again. But there are all applications where people don't have the money to spend to do that. Well, true. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if somebody's in that situation, maybe they do some of the job and then they come back and do the rest of the job when they have more money. Like if you've got 20 windows in the house, you do 10 of them. Do them another year if you build up your funds again. Make sense? Great idea. Because you're still getting it done right. And some people need that, that thrill that they got to get all the windows done at one point. And you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that, no. You windows, do what you can afford. You do what you can afford. Absolutely. And, but and you it, do it right. You do it right. Yeah. And that's the problem that I'm having. Most of these contracts are all about the sale. Hey, let me just get this sale and I, I can make my money. They're out of business in a couple of years. You've got a problem. How are you calling the contractor up? Hey, these windows are a lifetime warranty. The problem's not the window. It's the installation. And if you get that installation that's wrong, uh, you're going to have a problem. And now what are you doing? You're spending more money again. So that low price, and again, people always say, get three estimates. Well, after I talk to you, what are you getting in the estimate? Let's talk a little bit further about it. Well, I know what I'm looking at. After I talked to them for five minutes, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't think of that. This is the problem that the people are having today. That stucco problem that we talked about, 99% I personally seen have been the window issues. The windows are never addressed properly, and that's why it's leaking. But you know, there's a theme here to a lot of the horror stories we've done, the replays we've done. It's usually not the product. It's the hands and the brain that are putting it on there. It happens with windows. It happens with siding. It can happen with anything having to do with the house. Doors. Yeah. Told our stories about doors already, too. Well, as, as for our new listeners, when I say S&S, that's salesmen and subs. So when you look at that today, I tell people, listen, if you have siding on your house and the subcontractor comes out, if he takes 20 days or two hours to put it on, he's getting paid the same amount of money. How fast do you think he's getting it done? And that's the big right. difference. And people right. see these big 
uh, names that are because people are pushing the sales onto it. How do you know they're doing it right? Did you ask these questions before you signed that contract? Because you can Probably either get the not. gotchas, you can get the inferior workmanship, and these are the problems that people are having. They're calling me on and trying to fix it. Well, the fix is you got to hire a contract that's going to do it right for the first time. So what you paid for, you got to redo. So that's going to cost double the money. So why not get that education from this show first so you can make that educated decision so you get the job done right the first time and never have a problem again? Buying quality over like bargain basement is a good way to go all the time. If you're going to ask yourself, should I do this? The answer is yes. Buy quality. Buy quality. Buy quality in terms of people, the hands and the brains that are putting it on and the product. Right? I, I couldn't agree more. And it's just because over the past eight months since COVID had hit us that more and more of these contractors or wannabe contractors are coming in. And I'm, I'm actually physically going to the job. I'm getting caught now because they know who I am. But every time I go up there and I start asking questions, people want me away. I'm like, well, why, why do you want me to leave? I'm just asking questions. And if you're doing it wrong, that's the problem I have. So um, we're going to be talking about it more in the horror story. And we've got a couple great ones coming up in the next couple episodes. But the one I've got coming up right now is going to be a doozy. Okay, we're here with Anne, and Anne's got a number of rental properties, most of them in Pennsylvania, right? Correct. And she recently discovered a gotcha in this one rental property. Another horror story. Another horror story, yeah. What happened exactly? There's always been a push for HOAs to control investors. Uh, It happened years ago in one community where I have three units. Another investor hired a lawyer who filed a uh, class action suit and literally got all our years back, and it was like six years of fees back for us. But these same communities and some others are now pushing to reinstitute these investor yearly investor fees, uh, even if you have the same tenant in there. They want control of your leases. They want you to send them to them for approval. In one area of Pennsylvania where I have two units, the townships are even getting involved uh, doing uh, mandatory leasing license agreements where you have to pay fees for a license and then pay fees for another kind of license and then have pay an inspector to do an annual inspection, even if the tenant did not move. Also, they make you file a tax return to the county to pay tax on your rental income, even though you pay it through the state and you pay it in your federal. It just seems like there's a big push going on from either law firms or the HOAs to limit the amount of units and investors they feel What they've been telling uh, the owner occupants is that it's going to devalue their property. There's problems with renters. The FHA certification will be at risk. So they put all these fears in the owner-occupied units, and then the HOAs take control and start doing this. Also, what they've been doing is they make the paperwork impossible for you. They constantly are, are making you send form after form and copies of leases and and all these uh, resident forms. And the one real nightmare for myself and another person in one of our units, where I have three units, one of them is occupied by my mother. And because I'm not living in it, They said they don't care that it's not a rental. I still have to do the rental, the investor fee. I still have to do all this paperwork. I still have to consider it a rental, even though you have a family member that you chose on your own as personal decision to live in there. You know, it's just a breach. A lot out of control here. A big Uh, breach in control. Somebody's got their hands in the cookie jar a little too much. Well, everybody wants to get their shekels. That's what it is. Let me back up a second. I have two rental units, and Kevin has... What? I'm down to one now. You're down to one. Okay. Have you noticed anything like this? Well, happened? yeah. So about a year ago, in one of my properties, they were talking about the same thing. And I said, it's it's a very simple process. I said, everybody's trying to jump the gun here. You've got to understand what you're going to get into. Uh, number one, there's going to be legal fees, which the homeowner association is going to have to incur, which then incurs to everybody in the development. But number two, I told him, I said, how this easily works is that if you're having this issue, because there could be an issue where renters are devaluing the property. I can completely understand that. But I said the development that where I have a property at, the HOA board is so in tune with everybody there. That means they are very well policing the aspect, which means you're not allowed to have signs up on the side. You're not allowed to have this out, that out. They're really strict with it. They're going to find you. And that is in the bylaws. And I said, just them doing that police work is going to keep the community at a high level. You're going to be able to we get got that. We've got the same thing. Where I am in Doylestown, we've got the same thing. The same kind of restrictions. I don't have 
nobody's even broached this subject in Philadelphia with me. I, I do have to have a, a landlord license, license yeah. in, in Philadelphia. Yeah, we had no problems. We do a couple of other things too, but it's not been oppressive. This sounds oppressive. It sounds discriminatory too. Yes and no. I mean, they're doing it across the board for the whole community. You know, they're not singling out individuals. They're just going right to all investors. Um, you know, I think it's a push for these law firms because some of the law firms that so the gentleman that was the won the lawsuit for us in this one development years ago, I called him to see if he would get me out of all these that are coming up now because I own 10 units and eight of which are going to be affected by all these fees and paperwork and nonsense. I contacted him. He has retired, um, but he gave some recommendations. Well, I have gone through the phone book and talked to several law firms, and pretty much no one wants to represent my side. They're like, they have conflicts of interest. And here, most of them are representing these HOAs, and, or they want the business of these HOAs. Absolutely. It's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's all um, about the dollars. So mm-hmm. It's all about the dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to even find someone who will seriously take on this to do a class action suit with the investors to put a stay on this or to reverse it. You might try an idea here. You might try an attorney that's out of state, either New Jersey or New York, but who's licensed in Pennsylvania so he doesn't run into that logjam. He won't be going against local HOAs. Mm-hmm. That that's might, a great that idea. Might, that might work. Yeah, that might work. This is kind of scary. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, it's, I'm thinking about it the whole time because I have a property. That I, I don't want that happening to me. Or uh, you don't want it happening to me point. either. Wow. I mean, everything's been working fine for years and years and years, and somebody's got to come up the works. It's, it's, it's typical. Is this an organized movement among HOA-run communities in Pennsylvania, or is it just like happening here, there, and everywhere without any direction from any one person or organization? I think it's happening everywhere. The only places I have HOAs, are in Pennsylvania, my other property in New Jersey, and the one that I had in North Carolina did not have an HOA. So I can only speak for Pennsylvania, but I see a big push on all this stuff. Other people I have talked to that have investment properties, they're saying the HOAs come on on heavy. And I also see a lot of discrimination. The only time I see discrimination is when uh, some communities police, like if you have your trash cans in or out, or you know if your car is parked the wrong way or whatever, they tend to really come down on properties that have a rental. You know, I'm constantly getting notice. You know, your tenant didn't bring in their trash can by 5 p.m. You know, and yeah. they're like, oh my gosh, yeah. it was like, you know, I got home at 5:30 and I brought it in. I mean, they seem to be very, very tough when it comes to rental properties. And again, I've seen I mean, that too. I think, I think their whole push is to limit investors and they really want it all owner-occupied. I, 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 I'm trying to see both sides of the fence here. That's what I'm trying to look at. And I completely understand. Well, they're trying it. to protect their communities. I understand that too. But I mean, there is yeah, a there yeah. is a side I, to I our story here as, as right. investors. And I understand, I understand that, but these are high-end properties. They're all in the high threes, $400,000 sure. range which bring in high rentals. My rental income for these units are anywhere from 2600 to 5500 a month. So you're not getting a non-qualified good person in there with those rents. Um, yeah, absolutely. They're just anti-investor. Have right. you ever asked these people what they're using the money for? I mean, wouldn't you be entitled to an explanation of that? Well, they said it's administration fees. Administration uh, fees for what? I heard that one yeah, before. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, for, but yeah, for the hassle bag. of making sure they know who's in the unit in case there's an emergency. Okay, well, thank you for sharing your story. Kevin and I are particularly interested in that, and I'm sure any re- residential real estate investor who's listening right now would be. And listen to this. We've got, coming up right after you, we've got Scott Abernathy. He's president of his own property management company in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and he is the president of the National Association of Residential Property Managers and an author, too, his new book, Kingpin Landlord. You might want to get that. Unlocking the Secrets of Real Estate Investing. And we know, he knows about this subject. We're going to be talking about how this is happening or if it's happening nationally. So Absolutely. Be a show for everybody who's got properties to listen to, for yeah. sure. And for all our listeners, just give us a call here at, uh, or email me at kevinyourvaluablehome.net. I love to hear all these stories so yeah. we can get through and finally figure out what's going on yep. in there so it doesn't happen to you. Thanks again. And thanks for sharing your story. We appreciate it.
All right, Ron, now it's time for our featured segment, and I know we're having a returning client come back on. What do we got? Oh, yeah. We are very, very fortunate to have with us uh, for the next half hour, Scott Abernathy. He's the expert's expert on building wealth with residential real estate. He believes, as you and I do, don't go near the stock market that... For middle-class people, the way to build wealth is with real estate, residential real estate. Scott is president of his own property management company in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, PMI Property Management, president of the National Association of Residential Property Managers, that's NARPM, lecturer and author of multiple books, and his latest, Kingpin Landlord, Unlock the Secrets of Real Estate Investing, is with Amazon right now. So get a copy. I checked it out, and I'm going to do it when I get home today. But at any rate, Scott shared his wisdom with our audience before. So welcome back to your valuable home. How, what's the weather like down there in Murfreesboro right now? Weather is actually bright and sunny, and we are in the mid-60s and have the door open because we don't need the oh, air conditioning boy. or the heat. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you where we're at, but uh, I think we're going to end this conversation right now. It's been hard. but well, it hasn't been too bad. But, yeah, I remember talking last time you had some great weather. I think we did an interview with you when we were in the wintertime here, and it was still pretty warm down there. So I'm coming down. Hey, is, is there another place where I can just hang out down there a little bit down there? Because it, it's really been miserable and rainy up here. So. I'm right. I'm right outside of Nashville. We can take it all the honky tonks. Have a there great time. There we go. Yeah, we, we've got a, another replay coming up in the next future segments in a couple of weeks. Uh, somebody from Nashville contacted the show, and they're going to be talking about their bathroom. He's like, "Come on down. It's going to be so much nicer down here. It's 70 degrees. What are you going to do?" But yeah, thanks for coming on to the new Your Valuable Home podcast. My pleasure. Okay, we want to get right into this, Scott. We want to share your strong belief about uh, being a residential landlord, and it's a ticket for an avenue for middle class people to build wealth. But first. I'm going to tell you about a lady that just came on before you. She is a property owner, multiple properties in Pennsylvania. And we talked about something that is not a happy conversation for me or for Kevin, HOA run communities and the fact that they are charging or assessments for absentee landlords. Is that is that something that's happening around the country? We are seeing some of that around the country. Now, whether it is constitutional or not has not been tested yet. I do question whether it is or not when we're talking about private property rights, but we do have to remember Homeowners associations do have a tremendous amount of power. They're basically a small taxing authority. So it may indeed be legal for them to do so. In my property management company just outside of Nashville, we got a notice from a local HOA that we managed a little bunch of properties in. They were going to charge us a fee every month for renting the properties there. Their attorneys got together, that HOA company's attorneys got together and decided that would not be legal for them to do. So they sent us all of our checks back. But that, as far as I know, has not been tested in court yet. That was just an attorney's opinion. So their attorney volunteered or suggested to his client that they volunteer to give you your money back. That is correct. Smart yes. move on his part. Is it happening on the West Coast? Is it happening in the upper Midwest? Other places? I haven't heard a lot about this in, in my position as the NARPM president. This has not been one of the big concerns lately. Obviously, our biggest concerns have been things like eviction moratoriums and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So this hasn't been high on our radar, but yes, I have heard it from other parts of the country. And Ann said it's happening in a couple of developments where she has properties, right? What we see more of is for the HOAs to declare you can't rent properties in their neighborhood, period. And I think that's a big mistake on an HOA's part. You know, one of these days, 2009 will come again whenever you're desperate to sell something. And if you limit it to only homeowners, you're really going to be locking yourself into a bad position. Well, yeah, they risk suits from homeowners who can't sell their properties, probably. Yeah. That's interesting. I have a place in Doylestown, PA, uh, in Bucks County, and we've run into the resistance to uh, absentee landlords there. And it's, we're grandfathered now, but they put a stop. There's a limit to how yeah, many. 30% yeah, 30% usually yeah, yeah, that number. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing that's going on. You mentioned the constitutionality of it hasn't been tested yet. That's very, very interesting. Not to mention that to Anne. Hey, Frank, is there any way that this podcast can't get to my HOA? Like, everybody can listen to it, but my HOA can't listen to it. Because I don't want them hearing about this $500 <laughs> assessment that we could possibly get. I, I got a little scared when I was li- listening to it because I, I didn't hear anything about this. We talked a few times about in our HOA where I have a property. But they do such a great job policing because everybody was worried about the property value going down. And I said, no, not with the great board that we have in that can really set a good policing activity, which doesn't allow people to just do whatever they want. And that gives us such a tight community where I don't think we need to go that route. But they were thinking about limited to maybe about a 30% rental and grandfather. Yeah, we, that, we had that happen to us too. Scott, yeah. what should a landlord do who believes they're being treated unfairly with this kind of uh, policy? I would say you would seek legal counsel to start with to oppose that with the HOA. 
this HO is doing this, are they professionally managed or are they just managed by their board of directors? There's a big difference between HOAs. That I can't tell you. We did not ask her that question. Okay. I can get back to you on that. I'll question her about that. Good call. A professionally managed HOA would have at least somebody that they could consult with legally to see, hey, can we actually do this or can we not? Which is what the problem that I dealt with and was settled pretty quickly that way. But if it's just managed by the board of directors where they think that they are king of the roost, and can do anything they want, and they don't know it better, that may be the situation here. In that case, you could do some saber rattling and probably get taken care of. That's a very, very good idea. We'll have to bring that up with her. And she will obviously be listening to this show, so very, very good catch on that one. Is there anything else like a landlord could do to, in a non-adversarial sense, to attack this situation or address this situation if it arises? I would say you could come at it from a sense of reason. A $500 bill just seems completely unreasonable. A lot of people believe that landlords are just making money hand over fist. And don't get me wrong, it's a very good way to generate wealth for your family. You know, you guys know as well as I do, sometimes these margins are pretty thin from a cash flow basis. And that $500 could eat it all and maybe even put you in the negatives in in some cases. So maybe come at it from a point of reason. Yeah, absolutely. And if you got multiple properties in that same community, three properties is 1500 bucks a year for what? Nothing. Zero. Maybe come at it from another point also. Say, look, I'm a landlord in this neighborhood. I've got a handful of properties here. I want this neighborhood to be good because it fits my narrative as well. Let's work together. I will work with you. You work with me. I'm making sure we maintain this neighborhood. This fee is not necessary. Don't they have a right? Don't landlords have a right to demand some sort of accounting for that fee? What is it being used for? So, yes, the homeowners, the people that own the properties in the homeowners association are all members of that homeowners association. So the numbers, the books should be available to any one of them that wants it. And that's a very good point. Why are we being assessed this? What damages are being caused by my property being rented? to cost me $500. That's a great question. Yeah, that is non-adversarial. It's like, okay, I'm spending my money. What am I spending it on, right? Yes. That's not adversarial. Seems like a penalty for doing it. Uh, They're charging more I of a I think that's penalty. a great question. Yeah. Okay. Good, 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 good. We'll have to pass that on. Well, she'll be listening, so she'll hear that too. This development, it sounds onerous, and it sounded onerous to Kevin and I, but it really is no reason to begin doubting residential investing as an, as an avenue to wealth, is it? Oh, not at all. And, yeah. and I'm hearing people start to doubt it because of cap rates going down and this kind of stuff. The fundamentals of real estate are still there, even though prices have come up across the country. And rents haven't really kept up with it. The fundamentals of real estate over just about any other investment is still there. Absolutely. I've been in the stock market, in and out of the stock market. I got a little bit in the market right now. But what I like about it is you're more a master of your fate, of your own fate, if you have residential real estate. If you're in the market, you have no idea what's going to happen. We've had situations where if the big guys want to get out on a given day, they're going to do it. The market's going to tank. And then they'll come back in and buy low and ride it up again. And the same thing will happen all over again. And brokers will tell you to stay in the market for the long term. I believe that's what you should do with real estate. But what is the long term in the stock market? What is the long term? Anybody who's been in has been has taken a hit sooner or later. I'm completely with you. And like you mentioned controlling your fates. You also control your back pocket a little bit better. With real estate, you have a little bit of control to value add to that piece of property. Or maybe even if you don't take care of it, to detract it. You can take that control the other way as well. So if you buy a share of McDonald's, you're kind of counting on the Wall Street gods to say, okay, you get 20 bucks this year. You know what I mean? I'm totally with you there. I like the value add proposition on, on real estate. It's exactly right. And even if you buy, you know, I'm in Pennsylvania, Kevin's in Pennsylvania. Even if you buy, I'm thinking about buying a place in Charleston because I love Charleston. Even if you buy down there, it's still local. You go there, you maybe rent it out part of the year, you go there and use it for vacation, but you know it, and you know the area, you know what's happening in the area. You have not a clue what's going on in the stock market. Not a clue. I'm yeah. flying to Tampa next week to see what I bought. I'm <laughs> <down in> <laughs> well, that I'd meet you on. That'd definitely bring the golf clubs down there, and I'd meet you down in Tampa if you want to. So I wouldn't mind buying some more property myself now because I, I got rid of some of my properties. I guess most of them in Philadelphia, they're, they're gone now. And I definitely want to still maintain that availability to purchase so I can look for a future because that, that, that's my retirement investment in properties. And I'm fortunate enough that I can do this pretty easy because I'm a contractor, but it's still getting some great advice from someone like you to say, hey, where, where should I go invest this? And where do you invest it? That is a great question in this market. 
again, I think the fundamentals are there. I was just talking about this with a group of real estate investors nationwide the other day, and somebody brought up the point. What stops us? Because we had a lot of people saying, well, this market's getting too too high, and this, that, and the other. What, what is it that's going to stop it? I mean, I look around, and, and you know, I guess maybe some arduous regulations could. It is what it is. We are in a new normal now. Yeah, it's, I can see it definitely changing because a lot of people are trying to more or less purchase homes because of the interest rate being low, but there's still a lot of people that are doing some major investing in rental properties. And that's what I, I've always advocated because I'm a contractor. So I, I look for my future because I don't have any money in the stock market. I don't do any of the stock market because I just don't know enough of it. And if you don't know something, uh, then why do you it? You should stay out of it. Yeah. You I mean, should stay out of it. You can always listen to somebody, but you really need to know and have a great education. Because, yeah, with investment properties, if you have a great manager or if you know what you're doing, how to really work that money in that property, you can make very good money off of it. There's no doubt about it. You can definitely do that. Do you agree? Well, sometimes I feel like I've been sold a bill of goods when it comes to the stock market. I've always been a saver. So my first monies go into my IRAs, 401ks, you know, MSAs, all these de- tax-deferred investment plans that are all in gross stock mutual funds or index funds or the things that the financial people keep telling me that's where I need to put it. And it's done okay. Don't tell me the wrong way. And I'm, I'm in my 50s now, and I've been doing this since my 20s. It's done okay. But my post-tax dollars have all been invested in real estate, and my real estate assets are worth six times what my pre-tax stock market investments are. Uh, I, I think the real estate is just the best vehicle ever, and I'm standing to that. Let's not get rich quick. So anybody that's trying to get rich quick, that's not what this is. It takes time. But you give it the time it needs, it, it, you will absolutely become a wealthy person owning real estate. Yeah, it's like growing a good garden, right? You have to be patient and wait for it to happen, right? In, indeed. It's also a very forgiving business. So People are worried about us being at the top of the market right now. Well, even if you are at the top of the market and you go ahead and buy some at the top of the market, well, it's a very forgiving asset. It will come back again one day. A great example of this is I bought a duplex in 1993 for $54,500 that I had to sell in 2010, arguably the worst real estate market we were ever going to see. And I had to sell it for the low, low price of $112,000. Now, granted, a couple of years earlier, I could have gotten more than that, but I still made money on it. Mm-hmm. It's a very forgiving business. I have one unit right now in a suburban area, Doylestown. It's the county seat. It always will be. And so I figured it was going to be a good rental market going forward. And then the other one I bought, I bought in Philly. We've got some problems with the building right now. Uh, but I just found out that if we didn't have problems, I could sell it for in a low fours which is a $100,000 gain in five years. So that's not bad. So the reason I bought the one in Philly is because it was a tax abatement in Philly and I uh, didn't have to pay all the taxes for, there was like 8.5 years left on it. And so that's good for ROI, right? For cap. And I bought it for appreciation plus the rental. The one in Doylestown, I didn't, I didn't figure there was going to be a lot of appreciation. There has been. Didn't figure that in. But there were different reasons I bought. Is that a smart way to go? Should people look at it that way? Appreciation is a little bit more of a speculative play. If somebody mm-hmm. that has means, somebody that has some, some deep pockets, you know, or good income, I, I think speculation on appreciation may be a valuable play for somebody to do. But that speculation can bite you in the butt if it doesn't happen. Uh, we experienced that back in uh, the recession. I hate going back to the Great Recession all the time. But I had a lot of investors that were doing those interest-only loans. They were bottom 100% uh, financing interest-only. And then when the bubble popped, they were stuck with all this financing, interest only, with no mortgage pay down or anything like that. Now, I don't see that happening again. Don't, don't get me wrong. But those that had a decent income, survived it, came through it, and made a lot of money out of it. Those that did not wind up losing their houses. So it's a cautious play. But, I mean, I just don't see where appreciation is stopping right now. We're seeing multiple offers on almost every property that's for sale. Uh, we've got a phenomenally low uh, inventory out there for properties for sale. I don't see how appreciation is going to stop. I think it's going to keep going. Yeah, we're seeing an explosion of it here in Bucks County in Pennsylvania. Absolutely. You know, coming from here New York, Connecticut, Jersey. I have another office in North Alabama and another office in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, we're seeing explosions. And Memphis is probably not catching up as much as the rest of the country, uh, but I, we're seeing it all over the place, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems like you go all the warm states. What about those cold states? Do you ever go north at all? I like less regulations. I like the land of the free and the brave. Oh, wait, maybe I went too far there. No, 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 absolutely not. You know, that, the whole bottom line with me is, is what I'm looking at. So I'll give you two types of scenarios. 
I had to sell, uh, I downsized, and I had to sell the house back, it was like six, seven years ago, and it, the market was down. And I took a bath on the big property that I had, like a decent sized home. But even though I, I sold it for less, I took that money, whatever it was, and I, I bought that Doylestown property that I have. Right. And with the goals that I, I'm gonna retire there, because I love the place, I right. still love working there. So that was the one bonus. So what I did is I, I, I sold my, I had a building in Philadelphia and I sold that. So what I'm patiently waiting for, now maybe you can give me some advice on this, is I, I'm gonna have to wait this out. Because if I'm looking at a home today, I, I'm gonna be spending top dollar. So I wanna just wait it out and see what happens mm -hmm. with the market, say starting next year. Do you feel that for any of our investors that have the money right now, because trying to get a house is gonna be number one near impossible unless you're gonna overbid for it, should they wait a little bit to to take that money and see if that market's gonna change, if any interest rates change for the 2022 season? You know, just because I've experienced this before, I've gotta reiterate the whole Great Recession issue. I saw this same conversation being had with people with deep pockets in 2002. Well, should I just sit on my money now because the market's getting too hot? Well, think about all that appreciation those investors missed between 2002 and 2008. Good point. A tremendous amount of opportunity. You cannot predict this market. You can't predict it. If you find something you like and you want to buy it, buy it. What's the old adage in real estate? The best time to buy real estate was 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Very, very good. Philosophically, you're in, you're in my place. You know, a lot of people probably are wondering how you get started in real estate. If you're interested in stock market, you go go get yourself a stockbroker, right? Or you go with somebody like uh, Fidelity or one of the other ones that are the, the bargain basement thing where they don't charge a lot of fees. But what's your best advice to how to get started in the residential real estate market? Interesting you say that, because I've got a 23-year-old son right now who has finally decided real estate might be an avenue he wants to invest his money in he's you know out of college got himself a job and so he's currently right now looking for real estate looking at me for advice on this very issue so my suggestion to him was to find a owner occupied property you know owner occupy and rent rooms out to roommates uh, if he so wants to if he doesn't want to that's fine but if he wants to make some money on it rent rooms out to roommates and then next year do the same thing again and then the next year, the same thing again. While his income level is low, as he builds more income, he can put more power behind his investment. But while his income is low, just do one a year. These owner-occupied loans are ridiculously inexpensive. I mean, you can get sub-3% these days uh, on owner-occupied financing for 30 years. That's basically free money. And you just keep doing that. And uh, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines now give you up to 10 of them that you can do now. You do have to owner-occupy them for a year. So that's what I'm recommending him to do to get into this business is to do that. If he's you have more money in your pockets, yeah, exactly. He's got time. He's young enough. If you're, say, my age, you're in your 50s, and you've saved some money, you got some stock market, cash out of it. Cash out of it. Build yourself a nice down payment. And don't take, I mean, if you got something to lose, don't take too much risk. Don't finance too much of it. You know, my son's 23. He doesn't have anything to lose. If everything goes to crap, I mean, what's he really lost? You know, his, his 0% down payment. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. Deal. Yeah, that's a very, very good. If you good... got something to lose, put 30% down. And in my opinion, hire a good property manager to take care of it for you. And you don't even have to mess with it hardly. Well, you put 30% down, though, and I, I agree with it. Uh, the rates are not they're not going to get any better than this. I just no. got a 2.625 on a refi. Are they looking at debt-to-income ratio to give you a mortgage? Is it? They it, are, yes. On yeah. the owner-occupied properties, you are going to have to qualify for it personally, yes. So your credit's going to have to be good, decent anyway. Your DTI, debt-to-income ratio is going to have to be good as well. But they are easier mortgages to get than investor mortgages. And like I said, you can have up to 10 of them now. Mm -hmm. it's, you just gave me some ideas here. Especially for a young person just starting out, this yeah. thing, as long as they have enough income to cover that DTI, you're exactly right. It's a great opportunity. Okay. Yeah, Scott, years ago, I, a bunch of my friends bought down in Florida before the boom hit down there. Uh, they're doing very well. They, they're, again, my age, I'm 50 years old also. They they bought down there, rent strictly down there, don't even use the place because they, they're looking for a retirement. They want to use that as the retirement. So they're, the mortgage that they took off, they're using the renters to pay for that. Now the boom hit. It's heavy and hot down in Florida. The, the market, the real estate is going great. If I said to you, Scott, listen, I'm thinking of buying in Florida, would you guide me into a, a right direction? Like you said, you just purchase somewhere in Tampa Bay that you're going to be looking at. Is that something that uh, a real or any real estate investor would be looking at right now? 
I would. I would look. There's not many places in the country I wouldn't look at to buy right now. Even, I mean, Detroit's been in play for a while now, but it's still you still got good deals in Detroit. Florida is going to be a roller coaster. It always has been. It's really interesting. Every time you get a big hurricane that comes through Florida, all of a sudden you get all kinds of sales going on. Yep. Uh, you know, the houses go on sale. And then people have short memories. They forget the hurricane, and they start buying back in Florida because, let's face it, Florida's freaking awesome. Um, almost <laughs> as good as Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always judge by the golf courses. If, if I look left, I look right, and I see a golf course, I'm going to be happy I'm going to buy there. So, but yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to coming down to your place. To ride the roller coaster, Florida's good. Yes. What what properties? What types of properties would you avoid or advise somebody to avoid? So I like that question because I get that question asked an awful lot. And the way I see it is, if the deal's right, it's mine. But there are properties I don't particularly care for. Like I don't know what you've got in your area, but we call them zero lot lines or horizontal property regimes. This this is where you would buy a half a duplex. You own half of it, you maintain half of it, and your neighbor maintains the other half of it. Uh, and they're called zero lot lines. Where I don't particularly like anything that I don't control the whole roof line of. However, if the deal's right, I'll buy that too. Uh, I didn't used to like condos, but the older I get, the more I like condominiums because they're less maintenance for me to deal with. You get the, we were just complaining about HOAs a little while ago. Well, one benefit to the HOAs is they're going to take care of a lot of this exterior stuff for you, and you pay for it, obviously. Once you become a person of means, sometimes it's worth paying for rather than them do it yourself. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I always agree that um, or, or believe that many hands make light work. And that's basically the HOA concept, right? Because you're not, if oh, something has to be that. done, Can the I roof has to go on, you know, everybody's paying for it. Yes. Yeah. Can I use that? I love that. Uh, yeah, you can use it. We just went through this in my development. I'm in an HOA-run community. It's a 55-plus, and we're putting roofs on. And uh, first of all, we accrued for it. They went sooner than they were supposed to go, but there it is. I mean, you don't have to deal with uh, the committee picks who's going to do the job. And you go out there, and you'll watch them, and then you'll listen to the banging on the roof for a couple couple of days, and it's over. But if you do it on your own, it's a much more complex thing to do than if it's done through the HOA. So that's what I like about them. Completely agree. Okay. My still favorite is single-family homes. Uh, what I like so much about single-family homes as an investment is they're relatively easy to get into, relatively low resources, so you're like your down payment and stuff, and there's a lot more control that you have of, of the investment. Those are still my favorite, but I'm not shunning much of any kind of real estate right now. Well, with, with, See, I, I, I always think about that with the single homes trying to purchase a single home. And we, we looked at it. We looked at a few of the properties, but wow, Scott, they, they, around my area, they're, they're going for 20, 30% more homes. That, that's what people are bidding for, and they're getting it. So I don't want to go in there trying to purchase that, and just in case the market crashes, am I going to get the dollars out of it? Because I'm still, even though it's a low interest that I'm going to be paying for it, am I going to be able to profit with the rent money? That's what I look at long term. And then when I do, if I'm ready to sell it, when I do retire, is that money still going to be there? That's the big concern with me right now with the market being so hot the way it is. I think I'm always looking at my exit strategy when I'm buying something. What am I going to do with this when Good I'm all point. done with it? And a single-family home is so much easier to, to dispose of than multifamily condos, townhouses, zero-lot lines, things like that. True. You've got this giant market that you can dispose of it with. Even if you wind up in a recession, uh, you've got a much better chance. I mean, if you've got a duplex or multifamily, you're pretty much limited to investors. And investors are always looking for a deal, so... Uh, don't get me wrong. I like all those kind of pieces of property. I just kind of outlined my favorite. Yeah. Well, I was just talking to a buddy of mine. We had uh, lunch a couple days ago and we were talking about, it. I said, homes are the biggest waste of money. And he said, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if you live in your home, think about it. The interest you're paying on the mortgage, your taxes, uh, everything that you're rolling into it beside the principal, because that's going to put towards the house. But I said, if you have a rental property, you're gaining money off of that. So think of that and properties itself. If you rent, there's your money. And that, that's what I'm thinking is, is, is I really pushes. How am I going to still make money? Even though uh, if it's minimal until that mortgage is paid off, I still look at that that long term. And everything with me is going to be the long term. Now, I'm 50 years old, but I still have a good 20 years of, of working that I've got to go to. But that, that's what I'm looking at is, is will I be able to make money? And then towards the end for my retirement, uh, that's my whole thing was the, the, everything's retirement with me. So when I do retire, can I generate income off of that property? Completely concur with you. And even us 50-year-olds that are looking long term, remember, we're looking generationally now. We're not just looking for ourselves. We're looking for our generations beyond us, too. 
Okay, we're winding down here. I got a question for you. Maybe convince Kevin. He manages his own properties. I do not. I have two management companies. They've served me well. What can you tell Kevin to convince him to consider professional management? Uh, probably nothing. And here's what I mean by that. <laughs> Some people like it. Some people like property management. I happen to be one of those people. I love this top, top, this part of the business. I love the confrontation that comes along with telling tenants they have to do something they don't want to do. I can handle confrontation. Not only do I can handle it, I thrive on it. But not everybody is built for that. That's a headache to a lot of people. Or maintenance concerns. Those are headaches to a lot of people. So a property manager is headache relief. And being the president of NARPM, the National Association of Residential Property Managers, I know there are a lot of good property managers out there. But you do need to focus on a professional property manager, not necessarily the cheapest one around, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I interviewed a lot of people before I picked the two that I've got. One's in Philly and the other one's here in Bucks County. I love both of them. They are they're fantastic. And some, some something has to be fixed, boom, they're right on it. You tell them that and you know, trust, and I keep I keep I keep the them. tenant in the loop too, you know? I personally think that every landlord needs a good CEO to run their landlording business and the property manager is that CEO. But if that's the hat the owner wants to wear, that's not uncommon. Scattered site property, which is you know, your single family or small multifamily properties, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of that is self-managed in this country. So it's not uncommon at all. Tell us about your book, a little bit about your book and where people can get it. And Amazon do I get a signed autograph? Signed autograph copy. I, I would love to. I would love to get, to get you guys an autographed copy. And yes, I'm very excited about the book. It is uh, Kingpin Landlord. It is Unlocking the Secrets to Real Estate Investing. Uh, it is designed for people that own rental properties now that are self-managing, or if they got a property manager, maybe to coach their property manager with as well, to earn more money on their rental properties now. And some of it is counterintuitive. A good example of that would be late fees. Sometimes charging less late fees can make you more money. And if you want to know how that happens, uh, it can be bought at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. That's pretty good. You got me like, how? <laughs> All right. Good work out of you. We've got, and how do people get in touch with you if they want advice, whatever? Uh, they can go to kingpinlandlord.com, and that will take them to my book as well as my website. I'm also at kingpinlandlord on Twitter, Scott Abernathy on Facebook. My email address is Scott at rentfromscott.com. I'm going to put somebody in touch with you. My girlfriend's uh, nephew is thinking about moving to Tennessee, and so he could use your kind of advice, and I'm going to put him in touch I with you. I would love to help. Okay. love to help. We'd love to get you back sometime and talk some more about this subject. You can tell I love talking about this subject. I so know you do. I love out. listening I to hear you, you talk yeah, also. Absolutely. But just don't rub it in if we get back on the air again about how warm it is down there if we do talk <laughs> in the winter. I get a little depressed about that. <laughs> Unless you're going to invite me down wait the golf. Wait till we get a dusting. Wait till we get a dusting of snow. How about that? Do they have that there? That's it's not like happening now. No. Yeah, it's Southtown down there. It's not common. It's not common. <laughs> Scott, thank you very much for doing this, and um, you're a friend of the show. We're going to have you back again. Talk some more about this subject. My pleasure, guys. Thanks right. for having me. All right, okay. Scott. Thanks for coming on your Valuable Home podcast. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the New Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price.